All right. Um, so today we are in Romans chapter one, and um, I really would encourage you got to turn there. You just you got to have it in front of you, and if you don't have it in some way, just lean vigorously over the person next to you, just fellowship richly, looking off their Bible or their phone. So we are in Romans. Romans is a heavy duty book. It, it has probably the richest economic system of who God is and who we are and the connection between us of anywhere in scripture. Um, it has some of the clearest, vibrant statements about who God is and who you are. And if you don't know him, who you are, and if you know him, who you are, and the connections in the future, all kinds of super helpful stuff. And then there are like deep waters of mystery in the book. Uh, one of the beautiful things about Jesus as our king is he doesn't leave us groping in the dark. He isn't just, you know, our great husband he doesn't come to us and say, hey, all right, we got this thing. You're just going to have to figure it out. Like some ab absentee husband. He is with us, spirit, and he leads us and guides us. He brings us information, brings us truth, because we don't have it naturally, so he instructs us. Our passage today, um, I hope you like to think, because our passage today is a thinker. There's so much in there. Okay, now, we have to kind of keep a good pace as we go through Romans. Otherwise, we'd be there for 42 years, and we probably shouldn't do that. So uh, we're going to cover a, a fair amount of stuff, but that's why it's so important for you to read it and not just hear me what the things I'm saying, okay? So, so far we're in this book. This book today is, I think, going to be very helpful for us because it's really, it's really going to help you understand the world. Really understand the world. Instead of looking at the world through your, through your papers and through your Twitter and through relationships and those kind of things and then trying to diagnose it yourself, this is God standing on top and saying, let me introduce to you the world and what's wrong and all the effects that come out of it and how I feel about it, how it really is and why it's so important. It's incredibly helpful, incredibly helpful, and so helpful when you are dealing with people that don't know Jesus you're trying to speak to, to be able to understand what's happening in their heart, what you can and can't know what's happening in their hearts and minds. So our passage is Romans 1, 18 and 23. And uh, maybe it's just we start here, you know, this, this is our, my gospel stuff that we go through. You want to know where today's stuff fits? I'll, I have a laser pointer. I'm going to use it on this one over here. Um, so when we, when we go through the gospel, we start in who God is, right? He's the one who made it all, right? What he cares about is because he made us so he could share the delightfulness and the perfection of who he was with us and bring us into joy with him, like God's glory is his passion, speaks to us in the scriptures. He makes us to have a relationship with him. Man, that's a man and women right there, right? Makes us to have a relationship with him, but we all fall. Every last one of us. Scott Burns, I fell. And Sandy back there, she fell. She just raised her hand with a hearty amen. And you fell. And everyone you will ever meet will fall. So this is that fallen category, what's wrong with us, right? And then God proposes the new, the offer, the new thing we could have. Do we want him? Do we want him as our king and treasure? And if we do, then we've got to talk payment. How does he get paid for? Do you just get it automatically? No, you don't, right? How do we pay for it? Through the death of Jesus. So Jesus pays it for us. He forgives us, gives us righteousness, and we respond to that in saving faith at that point. We hear this and say, God, I hear that offer. Call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. I've read that. I've heard it. I believe in you. I call upon you. You save me. You bring me out of darkness. Bring me into marvelous light by what you did, not ever through what I've done. And keep me by what you've done, not ever by what I've done. So that's gospel thinking. Today's passage today is, oh, that's such a small pointer right there is this right here, this fall category. It is 
Sorry, then it refracted everywhere, right? I'm sorry. So it's the fall category, right? So we're going to learn today a lot about what is wrong with us, particularly what is wrong with the world and all of us before we encounter Jesus. So here we go. We are in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And I'm just going to read this. I'm going to read a hymn for you. We sang it on, uh, I believe, Good Friday. And then I sang it at a conference this week. Um, and these words struck me as I, as, I, as, I, as I read this because I have a problem sometimes. Sometimes I watch the news and things like Ukraine and just say, man, this world is crushed. Something's deeply, deeply wrong with this world. I often see it. But then a lot of times I'm bobbing along and I have friends and family. And I'm, I, I'm in my flesh, I think, oh, they're not that bad. They're, they're not that off. They're pretty moral. They're generally nice. And they do nice things. And they pick up trash on the side of the highways. And they generally don't murder and eat people. And, um, and they give me good gifts. And we have general good foray between us over coffee. And so I tend to think maybe things aren't that bad. This hymn uh, was one that I, we sang on Good Friday, and it goes like this. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. And that's me sometimes. Nor suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. Note the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. The argument is, if you want to really figure out how bad sin is, look at the size of the sacrifice needed and then discover how bad sin was. Sin's so bad that it took the second person of the Trinity to come here, become a human, live a hard life of teaching and suffering and toil, and then lay his life down to die a torturous death separated from the Father on the cross. That's how bad sin is. Okay, so that's the point of this, of this, of this hymn. But today's text, I think, will even open it up far broader beyond that. So please turn with me, if you haven't, to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. And uh, he's not here today. John Hansel is usually here. And um, I made an alliterated set of points for him because he loves alliteration. He can't help himself. And I hate alliteration, but I made one. So, John, if you're watching, here's the three points. The covering of sin, clarity of sin, and core of sin. For everyone else, we have more salient points that I like a little bit here. So, we're in our passage today, Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. Our first piece is this, the wrath is God's rightful response to sin. So, we read through the passage before, and in the passage, really starting verse 16 and 17, there's a double revelation in the passage, double revelation. In 17, it says, the righteousness of God is revealed, and then in 18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed. So, the good news of the gospel is, righteousness is finally found. We knew God was righteous, but now, finally, how we get that righteousness, finally it's found because the gospel is there. It's available through Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one, earns righteousness, human righteousness, and then gives it to us, imputes it to us so that we have righteousness in our record. Righteousness revealed. And we needed that so badly because verse 18 has been there since the creation of time. Because God's wrath was revealed since the creation of man. So look in verse 18. It says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So our first piece is this. Wrath is God's right response to sin. Wrath is God's right response to sin. God intensely hates all sin. That's the definition of theologian named Wayne Grudem gives for, for, for sin. It's God 
It's God expressing himself against that which is truly detestable. He has to. If it's bad and he's okay with it, we have a problem, right? So this is God's response and it's his reply to it. It's his treatment of that which is truly sin. So what is God's wrath? Wrath, you know, for us has kind of a bad tone to it. Uh, because it, it's in our, a lot of times in our minds, it's intrinsically wrapped with out-of-control emotionalism. But the wrath of God is not out-of-control emotionalism. It is more powerful and, and, and ceaseless and perfect and utter than anything we could ever think. But it is absolutely pure. It resides within God's justice and God's holiness and God's righteousness. He is not raging out of control when it comes to his wrath, but his wrath is his full-brunted distaste and war against that which is sin, the rebellion and treason against the living God. It is, his pre- it is present in the future and it is present now. Usually if you read wrath in Scripture, usually it's going to be talking about end of time when God judges all things and really pours out his wrath and eliminates, crushes sin. There's a day of wrath coming. But there's two sides to it. There's also wrath that is found now. Our passage today talks about wrath that is found for about at least four plus thousand, however how many years of human history we have recorded in the, in the New Testament and Old Testament, that wrath is seen now, and he wants us to notice it. So the wrath of God is revealed and has been revealed from heaven, from heaven. So this is not the, the things that he's going to say go on in this passage here are not things that are just natural consequences. This is God himself revealing his disposition towards our sin, and he's doing it right now. Kind of like uh, there is a certain grace. Uh, what's terrible? I'm in the West, I grew up in the West. We had these things called earthquakes. I grew up, they happened every now. I was like, woohoo, did you feel an earthquake? It's all great. Uh, until 1994, um, I'm laying there in my bed in a dorm, and at 4.31 in the morning, um, it started going. I'm a heavy sleeper. But um, it, this put me out of my bed and threw me against the wall three times. I was on a bunk bed. Um, it exploded my fish tank. Um, all power is gone in our building. I, I landed on the ground. The ground is standing in water, pitch black. All power is gone. All water is gone. It was the big Northridge earthquake. And, um, and that was the day earthquakes quit becoming cool to me. They're always just a little shaky, needy, needy thing. But that one was not a shaky, needy, needy thing. That one was devastating and so was every aftershock that came every five to ten minutes all thousands of them that we never knew if actually the one we just experienced was actually the foreshadowing of this little one that might turn into the big one right so all of us guys are all too cool to run for cover about a day into this coolness gone soon it starts rattling people are bolting out of the buildings we're running everywhere we're sleeping in the lawn a whole college of people sleeping in the grass for two days because the buildings are unsafe it's crazy the hot one of the hard parts about uh, about a, an earthquake is there's no warning for it as opposed to a lot of times our things in the midwest here a little bit where there's a warning you know you come out in the spring and all you're like oh man this is such a nice balm warmy day <laughs> you know it's coming if you live in ohio um, it's a warming of it. Or these hurricanes come where there is a ramping up of the storm, like a, pre, a, a precursor of it. Or, if, or if something is smoking hot and it hasn't quite combusted, but there's smoke coming off of it. It's a really good thing. As bad as the smoke is, as bad as the pre-storm is, it's a really good thing because it's warning you about something that's coming. It's warning you like, oh, maybe I should run for the basement. Or maybe I should tie things down. 
God's wrath in this passage is this. It's warning about the greater coming. And it's real. And he's saying you can see it. You can see it. So it's revealed by God himself. And what is it revealed at? It's not, re- it's not in this passage here, it's not leveled at men yet. It's leveled at their actions and the dynamic. That's what the passage says here. It is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the things that will be shown in God's wrath are here in this passage leveled at their actions and the effects of those kind of things. Later on, men, we as men and women who reject Jesus, and we'll see a little more about this in this passage, the wrath then hits us, not simply wrath against our unrighteousness and ungodliness. And the last part is why. It has an effect. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. So unrighteousness, we tend to think unrighteousness, um, and we talked this a bit, but I think it's worthwhile revisiting. In your heart, unless you've dislodged this rock in your heart, in your heart is probably the presupposition that something is really only bad if it hurts another person. Reason is, you grew up in the West. So everything's cool if it's private. If you got your private little gig, why can we say that's wrong if it doesn't affect anybody else? Because our definition, our cultural, religious definition in secularism is, it's only bad if it adversely affects another person, by my definition. Okay, so that's what we would say. If it adversely affects another person, by my definition. But that's not God's definition of what sin is. This sin, this unrighteousness, this ungodliness of man here, is suppressing the truth. The God of heaven says, your sin, my sin, and particularly the sin that is, that is not paid for by the blood of Jesus, sin actively suppresses the truth. Sin actively calls light darkness. Sin actively calls that which is good, not good. Sin actively calls that which is supreme and glorious and wonderful, not that good, not that hot, not that desirable, and not that satisfying. That's what sin always does. It is always obscuring light. And God is light and cares about light and emanates light. It's calling us into light. So sin is anti-light. It is suppressing and obscuring. It always does. It does it in you and it does it in every set of eyeballs that surround your life. When they watch you go through stuff, when you sin, you trust in sin, you stand between them and the sun. You shade them as to what the truth is. It will always be that way. And because sin suppresses truth, God's wrath is graciously being poured out on it. He's showing the effects of that wrath here on the earth. He's rightly, he's rightly re- uh, reacting to it. So, my friends, my friends, in you and me as a follower of Jesus, sin is not light. It's not something, Christ says, can a person take fire to his bosom and not be burned? Can you, can you take a hot coal out of your fireplace or out of your grill and stick it right here on that soft white pork belly tissue right there? Can you hold that and not get burned? You can't. Can you play around with sin and take it to yourself and not be affected? You can't. It will suppress truth. Every time you and I dink around with sin and make excuse for sin in our reactions or our proactive pursuit of things, we are suppressing truth in ourselves, if not to anybody else. 
And then since we're usually not living on an island, when we do it and we're seen doing it, we are preaching a message of delusion to our friends. So sin is an enormous thing. We were listening to a conference this week and John Piper was preaching and he preached out of 1 Peter chapter 1. It talks about pursuing holiness. Why? Because you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ is what was needed to free us from this life of sin. So number one, God rightly hates and has been demonstrating his wrath on sin because of its aggressive, truth-suppressing nature. God rightly hates and has been demonstrating his wrath on sin because of its aggressive, truth-suppressing nature. Our second piece is this. God has made his presence clearly known. God has made his presence clearly known. Look at verse 19 and 20. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Okay, so again, this is, this is talking about to all of us before we know Jesus um, and to everyone that doesn't know Jesus still, okay? What can be known about God is plain to them. What, you say, what can be known? That comes down a little bit later, okay? What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Um, attributes is a word describing his qualities, his nature, the things about him. So the invisible, and literally the translation is his invisibilities, if you, that helps you out. For his invisibilities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So let's just, let's just walk through this. So I want you to read it so you're not trusting me. Your eyeballs are right on the text. This is, this is God's Spirit inspiring these words through the pen of Paul. So this is God writing. Take a look back down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Uh, maybe maybe some change of some words here might be helpful. He does some wordplay in here that may or may not be evident in the version you're using here. So literally in verse uh, one, uh, 119, it says, What can be known about God is plain or evident is evident to them because God has made it evident to them. Like, they see it. The reason they see it, they, it is clear. God is saying, no matter what you think and no matter what your friend thinks, the things of God are actually clear. Now, there may be a reason we think they're not clear. We may say, well, I'm not convinced or I'm confused or I don't know. It's true. You will never know empirically. No one will ever know empirically for sure by the senses of eyeballs and touch and taste and formulas that God exists. But you will know. And you will know in the deepest and most truest way of full accountability that he is there. So he's saying, it is plain to them. And the reason it's plain to them is because, the end of the verse, God himself has made it evident to them. It's evident because God has made it evident. So God is supernaturally, as he has made this world and sustains this world, God is actively making evident in front of people that he is there and his nature. What type part, part of his nature? It's found in the next verse here. For his invisible attributes, namely, what, what can be known about God? These two things. So, so if I look out these windows here over this quarry, that water pond there and these grass, I can see things. I can't look at that maple tree out there and go, hmm, xylem and phylum in the wood tissue. Man, I bet you there's a triune God. And I bet you he sends the second person to die for my sins. You just can't pick that stuff up. 
right? You can't pick up a lot of the things that God has told us specifically in his word. But when I do look out that window and I do see those things and I do see those animals and I see the sky and I see the clouds blowing from the west to the east and it happens to always work that way and we're in the season of spring now. When I see these things, they're communicating two things according to this passage. Number one, that God is there and that he is divine power. That there is a power that exceeds ours and he has it. Number two, that he is divine, not created. Those two things God says he's placing in front of us when we look at what's called natural revelation. But in natural revelation versus special revelation, so the, the, the word you have in your hand there or in your heart, you memorize it, that is God's special revelation. That's all the details. And you have to know the details of who Jesus is to actually come to know him. But all the world has the general revelation. So if you're shipwrecked as a small child, and um, before you can even talk, and you wash up on some shore, some really nice island, and some, like, monkeys take care of you, and you grow up, you, as um, a nonverbal, monkey-raised child in a loincloth on an island, God is revealing in front of you clearly that he is there, full of power, and he's not human. Those things are there. And they're there to every single soul on the planet. That is general revelation. And no person will ever come to salvation through general revelation, but they all are held under accountability by general revelation. God tells us that he's rewarded those who diligently seek him. So any person out there who looks at that, and they're sitting there, and they're like, this is, there's something going on way beyond humanity here. There is purpose, and there are morality issues. I know it's wrong to kill my neighbor and eat him. I just got it in here. And I know it's wrong to rape. I just got it in here. And I know it's wrong to steal Bob's coconuts. I just got it in here. So we have law written on our heart. That'll come in a few chapters, chapter 3. But we have these things where God is demonstrating to us that he is there. He just promised us those who diligently seek him, he will reveal himself to them. How? I don't know. He's got a lot of ways. One of them is you because you have the gospel. A lot of ways he's done it. But the, me the message of God the special revelation has to come to them. General revelation is in the face of all people on the face of the earth. It is God revealing himself. And it is, it is him making evident to us the fact that he is there with his divine attributes, that he is not one of us, and he's supremely powerful. So look, continue to look in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. So again, it's a little play on words here. His invisibilities are made visible in the literal words. His invisibilities have become visible, and he, but he remains invisible. He is spirit. So God, if you think you saw God in the clouds, you do not. God doesn't do that. The only time we have any visual reference of God is in the person of Jesus. That's why it's so big that Jesus took on the form of, of a human, became a human, because he is the visible of the invisible God. So I know your grandma one time was driving along, and she was praying, and she saw a cloud shaped like Jesus. She didn't see a cloud shaped like Jesus. She saw a cloud shaped like Jesus, but that was not Jesus. That was not God. That's not how God reveals himself. He reveals himself through general revelation, a special revelation. So he is the invisible God, but has made himself very visible through this. Look at the end of verse. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So this has been going on since good old Adam and Eve crawled. Crawled out of the garden. God has made himself visible through things, not him standing visibly with us until Jesus came. Literally, the word is 
to the things that have been done. So God is actively doing these things, actively doing those things. And you see that he's doing things. You're seeing that planets are rotating in, in, in order, in orbit, and they're not spinning out of control. You see these things. You see life being generated time and time again on this planet. Those are things that we can't do. Those are God doing things. They're demonstrating the fact that he is there and he is powerful. He is not like us. And we can't even begin to do things that he does, even with all of our advances. So God is doing these things. This is God testifying to us that he is there. And the end effect is, in the end of verse 20, so they are without excuse. So when I'm talking to my friends, and I have gazillions of them, um, who don't know Jesus or love him or trust him yet, one of the things I know, though I understand what they say, like, I'm not sure. Here's why, here's why I know what they say. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not convinced of God. I understand that for a couple different reasons. Number one, God says we know him by faith. Not by blind chuck faith. Like, well, just fling yourself out there and make up something about Jesus and land on it. You understand you stand on the precipice of faith and then God moves in. Jesus moves in with the revelation of who he is and his love for us and how he dies for us. It's like, it's like this it's like this, this, this island that kind of comes in on the ocean, right, brings it in. So we're not just hurling ourselves in the ocean of blind unbelief. He moves this island in of who he is in the gospel, and he gets it really close, really close. And then he calls us to jump in faith to this defined island of the gospel, of revelation. So it's not a blind leap. So yes, you won't know for sure because he's never going to allow us to know in that type of way empirically, I, formula, the making of DVDs, all those kind of things. Right? He brings to us the gospel, calls us to step in faith into that. But here's the second thing. No one escapes the faith jump, right? We, we jump in obedience to Jesus because he's brought to